This episode of the Artsy Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Artists, photographers, and designers of all kinds have used Squarespace to showcase their works, and you can do it too. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch your site and show your work to the world, use the offer code ARTSY to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code ARTSY, A-R-T-S-Y. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Deputy Editor Scott Indrasek. Hello, Isaac. Hey, Scott. And great to have a special guest with us today, co-founder of Art and Feminism and independent curator Jacqueline Maybe. Hi. So today we're going to be talking about Scott's excellent, fascinating feature about the lives of independent curators um and also the precarious and glamorous lives. <laughs> thank you for the correction the precarious and glamorous lives. so let's just dive right into it i think the word curator is used a lot to describe a lot of things and i think everyone probably has some conception of what an independent curator is but how would you really uh jacqueline maybe you can jump in here how would you describe what an independent curator is and does to someone who operates outside of the art world yeah, everyone who makes a sandwich is a curator. Uh, <laughs> I think because of like the preponderance of the the word, people kind of assume it just means selecting, uh, and they don't understand that you know being a curator is a kind of holistic process. Um, I mean, we could talk about what's involved in organizing a show or organizing a talk, but like as a curator, I don't you know I don't have a clean break at the end of the day, right? Like it's it's a practice, and I'm always reading and you know meeting with artists. And, and working through ideas with them and and you know it's not it's not so kind of like hard and fast of where it stops and ends but I mean at the most basic it's you know working with artists to ha- help them like actualize their work in the world okay so super uh, basic follow-up question independent curator versus regular curator what's the what's the difference well one has a job full-time <laughs> uh, and works generally just for one institution uh, and if you're a curator at a major institution you actually usually have to ask permission to do any work outside of it um, whereas independent curator you know you work with whomever will have you <laughs> and Scott what kind of got you interested in in independent curators um, I think it's one of these jobs of which there are you know multiple similar jobs within the art world and and elsewhere where you kind of observe people doing them and you kind of see, you know, uh, that it seems like an exciting job. You're kind of like moving around. You may be living in different places, handling different projects. But I guess you, the question in the back of an outsider's mind is how does this work in a dollars and cents kind of way? Like how do you make a living? And then because it's the art world, I guess the second question is, you know, maybe if you're not making a living, how are people doing it? You know, and, th- and this kind of thing. And I'm not sure if I have a better grasp on that essential question after writing the piece, because I think it is, it's sort of a fraught issue whether it's possible to make a living, and I really appreciated your honesty, Jacqueline, when we talked as far as the fact that you like to, you know, get into these kind of issues of class and money and labor with people, and and that you find that a lot of people in the art world tend to, like, slowly back away once you bring these things up, (laughs) because it's, it's, it's kind of an elephant in the room, I think, money in general for art workers, let's say, because some people might not need the money, you know, for instance. Right. And I think that, you know, before I came here, I was looking at Facebook and people talking about the article and someone's I saw a comment that was, you know, don't work for free ever. And I think it's complicated. Um, You know, I, I think that part of it 
is connected to the fact that, you know, in what we do in the arts, so much of it is about effacing labor, right? Like when you go to an opening, you shouldn't have a visual understanding of how difficult it was to get that show up, which then kind of creates this cycle of like, well, but it's easy, so you shouldn't be paid for it. I mean, I think it's complicated. I think, yes, big institutions, commercial galleries should always pay people and you should say, you know, pay me or I won't do this. But, you know, there are things that we do for our communities that I wouldn't ask for money for. Or, you know, I mentor some, like, younger art workers and I, at the end of, you know, hanging out with them, don't say that's $200. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what's so important is that we have to start recognizing labor as labor. I've had this experience, you've probably had this experience doing anything that involves digital labor. Um, there are some who don't understand um, how much work it, it takes and how much effort, and they just think the internet is magic and it just happens. Um, so it's understanding that that is labor and valuing people's time and thanking them for labor. I mean, I think we just need to start there, <laughs> of acknowledging you know, how much we're all working and, and giving people credit for the work that they do. I think it's an interesting point, and you had mentioned it before, uh, it came up with a lot of the people I talked to, is that one of the tricky things is actually defining you know, when you're on the clock or off the clock, you know, and that in a lot of ways, you know, I think people outside the art world might go, oh, come on, like, you're gonna go get drinks with an artist and you're gonna consider that labor, but you know, if you're talking, if, if, that's, if that's part of the planning process or if you're doing a studio visit, even though it might be fun to a degree, like that is work and that's part of what goes into planning a show. And there's no, there's not an easy way to just be saying, I spent, you know, 400 hours preparing for the show that I'm making a flat fee for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can uh, deduct those drinks from your taxes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're more likely to be audited as working independently. Um, no, I think it's a really good point of like, well, yes, it is It is social. Like we, our art is a social milieu, but you know, the labor in reproducing a relationship is labor. <laughs> um, and I think that um, trying to communicate that to people outside the art world, yes, it, it, it can be difficult at times. So, Scott, I know you said even after writing this article you didn't come away with sort of firm answers, but can you maybe just give us a sense for what you found? Like, what, what did the spectrum look like? Because I imagine there's quite a continuum of, of uh, independent curators. Well, I would say I can't recall speaking to anyone, really, who, when I asked that question, you know, is this a sustainable full-time career the way it is, just curating for a living. I, don't, I think very, very few people, maybe with the one exception, just said yes. This is a long-term plan, you know. Most people, it, first of all, curating was part of like uh, a larger group of activities or, or jobs that were kind of done in tandem with each other, you know, maybe writing, maybe teaching, and curating as well, and they kind of all informed each other, or one job would lead to another job. Um, but it seemed like a lot of people as well, the goal was to eventually end up uh, in a more kind of firm institutional setting, um, which is problematic as well because obviously you've got a lot of independent curators out there and not the same number of, you know, full-time institutional jobs. Um, and, yeah, so that, that seemed to be one of the, the major dilemmas is just kind of like a what's next, you know, after, after you've paid your dues, after you've gotten a reputation, you know, and, and also like getting a reputation, I'm sure, doesn't always, always translate into, you know, I'm now making a great salary. You know, you could have a great reputation and still be getting paid zero dollars for that great work. Jacqueline, do you sort of think about like is independent curator where how you uh, want to spend the rest of your days, or do you kind of think think about a different future? You know, if that's too personal a question, you do not. Have to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I was just. Let <laughs> me tell you my dreams. <laughs> where do you see yourself in five years? Um, 
So, I mean, I think it's a good question. It's a difficult question because part of me would love to be, you know, full time in an institution, but not just about security. We talked about this, Scott, that it's it's also about, you know, when you work at one place for a long time, you get to know a community and you get to program for them and create a dialogue and you get to, you know, if they have a collection, then you, you get to work with it and understand it and, you know, build relationships with the artists in the collection. Um, and that's really meaningful and I think an important part of the work. So, you know, I have desire for that, but I mean, I think it's also, you know, asking these questions of like independent curating, is it sustainable? Can people do this forever? Both, you know, the context in which we're working is so new um, because of these fundamental shifts that have taken place in the art world um, and the larger economic changes that are happening, right? That like, I mean, I don't, no one in this room knows what's going to happen <laughs> with, uh, you know, the changes happening in labor. Um, so it's it's hard to say. I mean, can I, I don't know if I can imagine doing it forever without having, you know, a greater, I mean, I could do it forever if there was a greater social um, safety net in this country, but there isn't, so. Yeah, you kind of mentioned the, the dynamics in the art world. I'm kind of, you know, reading this piece, I was sort of curious the way in which master's programs kind of play into this and people paying a lot of money to be trained to be curators and uh how that kind of increase in in, in supply to get kind of a little dehumanizing uh impacts the, the market for independent curators and, and just the number and how difficult it is to to practice that you know my issue is more with the professionalization of the arts having a chilling effect of who can participate um you know both in the sense of like you know, I did all my schooling in Canada, so it's more affordable, but in the US it's not. Um, and, you know, so that sort of, you know, narrows to a certain socioeconomic group, which of course connects to um, uh, who has the money in this country, white people. <laughs> um, and, you know, moreover, it's the concern of, um, you know, if we all read the same books and go to the same schools, are we going to be producing like the best shows? Does that produce the best art? And I don't think it does. Um, and if we, we create communities that don't, um, aren't welcoming to difference, then what, you know, I think that's ulti ultimately detrimental. And Scott, how do independent curators kind of supplement the normal curatorial systems that existed at institutions? What do they bring? Well, I think that this is one of the interesting things I found talking to two people in particular, uh, Johanna Burton, who's with the New Museum, and uh, a gentleman named James Burns, who kind of runs an independent, uh, like an independent curatorial advisory firm, let's say now, after like three decades of working in museums. And he was saying... The both, they both were saying that kind of one of the benefits of this symbiotic relationship maybe is that, you know, you've got institutions that have a certain way of doing things that kind of have a rule book that they, you know, it's, it's an institution. So there's, you know, they might, like any institution, you might get into a rut of doing things a certain way. And it's always great to be able to bring in fresh voices to kind of shake things up. And uh, uh, James Burns in particular said that, you know, kind of what independent curators can do is come into these contexts and almost in this naive way just ask these sort of elephant in the room questions that maybe everyone else at the museum has been thinking, but they don't want to go there, you know, and, and new, uh, new outside voices can kind of push things forward in, in a way by, by just, yeah, by, by shaking things up and kind of asking those questions uh, because they're able to. Bring in new audiences, yeah. And also this sort of, the other, the other aspect of it too is that he was at least saying that he, he thinks most like the, of the actual full-time curatorial staff is trending towards being more like, more generalists, let's say. And that when you want someone who's very specific, like has very specific expertise, you might not be able to hire that person. You know, let's say 
let's say your area of expertise was Latin American art or like Colombian art from the 1960s. You might not get an institutional job with that specific background, but you might get a lot of opportunities to be brought into institutions that, that want to do a show about that topic and they need someone who's like the person for that. I mean, I found that to be an interesting point of, and felt like maybe counterintuitive around the generalists in the museum because I feel like my own, you know, path has been very much uh, interest and desire driven. And as a result of that, like someone might look at it and go like, this makes no sense. <laughs> um, you know, you haven't just been working on Latin American art from the 60s. It's like, no, I've, you know, tried to follow a path of like honest intellectual inquiry um, and, you know, kind of like a queer and rambling path. But so it's been the opposite of my experience, right? That that has been like uh, detrimental to trying to explain myself to to institutions because um, you don't have like a super narrow right, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience as an independent curator? Like, what are the things that you've really loved about it? What's maybe like driven you a little crazy? Um, I mean, I think the things the thing that I love the most about it is being able to go and do those like deep dives in the community or in a space. I usually starting any project with a lot of research. Uh, I want to know as much as I can about um, the community in which I'm working and like the institutional history. And that usually shapes um, the projects I do. Like for instance, I have a show up right now at um, Franklin Streetworks in Stanford, Connecticut. And I'd been interested in this institution and I wanted to pitch something to them, but I knew I knew nothing about Stanford other than it was a commuter town. Um, so I started doing some research and I found that Stanford had had witch trials. Um, they weren't as big as Salem, Massachusetts witch trials, but they had them and they also did dunking there, which is where they tie the person up, throw them in the water, and if they drown, they're innocent. If they float, they're guilty and will be punished, um, which is, you know, it's, it's uh, called the water test. It's a test you can't pass. Um, and because of the way that my brain works, um, I started thinking about refugees trying to get across the Mediterranean. And then it felt like a similar double bind where, you know, you can't stay in the place that you're fleeing because of war, because of, you know, persecution, whatever. And so if you drown in the Mediterranean, you are framed as a, you know, tragic victim. But if you make it to Europe, you are not wanted. You are an interloper. Um, and so, you know, the show I ended up doing sort of emerged from that kind of initial research. So, you know, being able to being able to like go and learn new things and, and, you know, uh, follow that kind of questioning path is, is phenomenal. It's fabulous. Um, but it is labor intensive because it is a bit, you know, reinventing the wheel each time. Not everyone does this. Everyone has a different practice. This is just me. Um, but you know, I mean, I was thinking about it on the way over here of, you know, for the, the difficulties and all the things that are problematic about the art world, um, I feel so grateful to be a part of it because it keeps you like young in the sense of that it keeps asking, you keep asking questions, you keep learning new things. I mean, like Scott, think about your job. You get to learn new things all the time and like meet new people and ask them about their lives. That's fabulous. You could work at a it box is. factory, <laughs> <laughs> but you don't. <laughs> Um, you know, so that, that, I mean, that's, that's a phenomenal thing. Um, but then, you know, the difficulties of that is that each time you're dealing with a different institution and, you know, maybe one institutional partner really wants you there and the rest do not, <laughs> um, you know, that, that's less, I've had generally very positive experiences. Tell that's us about a very me. specific situation no. where that happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is more something, you know, in dialogue with, with other people. Um, 
you know, that that's difficult, um, you know, expectations and trying just to learn to communicate with a new group of humans uh, every time is, is difficult or things like, you know, uh, I did a show at Bennington College and part of it was um, having these brown, uh, brown bag lunch conversations around feminism in the gallery space. But, you know, they, no one really came to them and I was like, what am I doing wrong? What's, what's not working? And then I realized pretty quickly that like their cafeteria is the center of their social world. And I was like, oh, I should have done these conversations in the cafeteria. Um, but it's, you know, that's a thing that I only learned by being there. Um, so pros and cons. Well, you, it's interesting because you mentioned two projects that are, uh, you know, outside of New York and in different places. And I, I imagine, let's say you're an independent curator based in New York. There's only so many shows happening. There's a lot of competition, right? So you're going to find opportunities that might be all over the place, you know, maybe like a college in Tennessee wants to do a show. So, I mean, is that, is that a perk in, in your mind as far as that ability to geographically be in different places or, or can that also be a struggle? And, and, and also like, how does it work? Like if you are doing a show, let's say in Tennessee, does that mean that you've got to be in Tennessee for three weeks or can a lot of that be done where you are based and then you kind of get there for the opening? How, like what is, what does that play out like? Um, I mean, each project is different, but I mean, I do like the ability to um, be working outside of New York. I mean, as much as I, I love it here, um, you know, I remember when I was leaving Canada, I was like, oh, I'm so excited to leave this parochial art world. And then I came to New York, I'm like, oh, wow, it's deeply parochial here. <laughs> People kind of only care about what's happening in New York. I'm like, but there's the whole world of art going on. Um, so I do like the ability to travel and, you know, work with institutions outside of the city. Um, yeah, and generally most of the, the legwork happens um, outside. And then maybe you just like fly in for, you know, the install and the opening. Um, yeah, that's sort of, I mean, as a general rule of thumb. And it's, you know, it's pros and cons. Like, I, I love traveling, but it does, you know, it takes a toll on your life when you're traveling a lot. Um, and, you know, like, those people who just, we all know people who live, like, residency from residency. I mean, most of them that I know who, like, seriously are always traveling are single. Um, like, you can't, how do you maintain relationships um, when you're always leaving? Um so I don't know. It's kind of uh, pros and cons. I feel like it's like a lot of jobs in the art world where it might tend to be skewed towards someone younger in their career or just less tied down, where being in a different city every week would be, you know, really exciting when you're 25 and maybe less so when you're 35, especially yeah, if you have a partner or a family, they might not be that excited that you're never home, let's say. Yeah. And, you know, just aging and <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. 25 and I can't imagine. <laughs> like, I, going to Brooklyn is a bit of a schlep. Like, <laughs> going to a city every week. Oh, man. You were, you were born old. It's okay. <laughs> An old soul. So, I, I also wanted to ask you, Jacqueline, a little bit about how gender affects the field and how you sort of see uh, gender dynamics playing out among independent curators and, and maybe their relationships with institutions as well. Oh, that's a swamp. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that I think there's an issue, particularly this is like it goes back to like thinking about labor and money. There is a horizon of expectation of women doing unpaid labor. Right. Um, and there's a horizon of expectation of unpaid labor in the art world of like, you know, you have to be at the opening and you have to do X, Y, Z. Um, so I think that it sort of becomes more fraught in that context. Um I mean, as it plays out, 
in independent curating, I don't think you can necessarily just like isolate it. Um, I think you have to look at it as like the the ecosystem of you know. Um, at least my anecdotal experience, I don't have the actual stats on it. Like thinking about, you know, I studied art history from year, for years. That's like Ladyville. Uh, <laughs> and it feels like the same way in like curatorial programs and that, you know, uh, it just feels like the art world runs on like like women's labor. Um, but those are that's not who's in, you know, positions of power, right? Yeah, and thinking about what, what you said also about the way in which these the independent curators are kind of part of larger dynamics. You, you've mentioned labor dynamics. Uh, I think when, whenever someone hears something like independent contractor, independent curator, they, they immediately compare them to things like Uber or other sort of, you know, gig economy jobs. Mm -hmm. How do you see uh, independent curators fitting in into this system? I mean, is there the same kind of labor concerns that, that people raise about uh, gig economy work that it's, you know, it can be precarious, it can be exploitative, underpaid, all this other stuff? Or is it is it on the more sort of liberating side of the spectrum? You can do whatever you want, set your own schedule. <laughs> That's the binary. I've <laughs> laid it out. Um, you know, I think I really do feel like because of these like dramatic shifts in the art world that we have become like neoliberal workers par excellence. But when I say that, I always have to caveat with like, you know, my precarity is different from like a day laborer. My precarity is different from someone who works in like retail or food service or domestic workers. Um, you know, I might not have as an individual a lot of economic capital, but I have the capital of education, I have cultural capital, I have the capital of my networks. And I always think it's really important to be clear about that. That said, I think that it's, there's a kind of like particular dynamic that makes it sort of worse within within art, which is this like persistent pernicious idea that you shouldn't be paid well for if what you do is a calling. Um, and you know, that you should, the kind of like gamification of labor that's happening in other industries um, is made worse by that, like this is, you know, this is for me as a calling or, you know, uh, I think that that sort of exacerbates um, a larger uh, current uh, labor conditions. Right. It's not, it's not even, curating is not even a job. It's a pursuit. It's right. A, well, yeah. and I do have to say, this has always been my pet peeve and I don't mean to, I, to call Jerry Saltz out again. I call him out in the piece, Jerry Saltz. <laughs> I, I love Jerry Saltz, but I, I I've always think think I've always thought it's a little strange the way you know he his idea that you know constantly saying that the art world is this all volunteer army and no one came here to make money and then he's always like constantly talking about how he has no money and and I never I've never seen why I mean I've I've always thought that people who work in the arts should say, damn it, like I should get paid accordingly and I shouldn't be embarrassed. You know, if you got paid well for a job, like what? you should tell other people and be like, you should yeah. get paid more. We shouldn't all be working for free or for crap. No, I mean, and it's it, in, no in no other industry would you say like, you know, I'm doing this surgery for exposure. Uh <laughs> <laughs> if you did, that would be, you'd walk away slowly. Right, <laughs> right. It's like, you know, it is a calling, but I still did deserve to be paid for my labor. Yeah, it can be both, right? It can I mean, be, it can be, it can be both. Well-paid calling. Yeah. Um, or like a, you know, a reasonably paid <laughs> calling. I mean, I think there's the element of like, you know, I'm not dumb and if I wanted to make money, I would have like, you know, become a stockbroker or something, right? Uh, 
um, I had realistic expectations uh, about wage coming in, uh, you know, being a participant in the art world. Um, but I think that, you know, we need to take a stand of uh, it's it's not right to say that we shouldn't make anything. Plus, and I think the, the other thing is that you're, you know, even if you're not working for huge commercial institutions, you're plugged into a larger system that's not exactly like starved for cash. No. You know, it's it's there's a lot of money floating yeah. around. You know, and it, that's what that's where it feels like really hypocritical of like no artist you shouldn't make an artist fee, but then you know, what is the um, the Clement Greenberg line about how the arts are connected by an umbilical cord of gold to the ruling classes? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where it gets hard. If like, I've definitely been at like cocktail parties where, you know, people say things like, oh, it's impossible to live in New York under $200,000 a year. And I'm standing someone I, next to someone I know is paid like $30,000 at a really gallery. Yeah. People say stuff like that. And you just have to resist the urge to, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've always <laughs> said it as long as 180000 <laughs> This is per quarter, though, right? Yeah, <laughs> per quarter. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So for any of our listeners who, who've gotten to this point and are, n- are now inspired to be independent curators, uh, what, what's, how does that happen? How do you cut your teeth in this field? So, again, it's been a, a queer path that I've taken. Um, I guess the way that... I try to frame, to understand me at all, (laughs) uh, is to know, it's important to understand that I grew up in DIY music scenes. Um, And so from a very, like, very early age, um, I had this kind of, like, profound understanding of the imbrication between art and community and the way that, you know, people gather around ideological forms and that that creates new alliances and new ways of being in the world. Um, And... So when people ask me, like, how, when did I decide to become a curator? How did that happen? Um, I think it was just a natural path of, like, I've always been a fan. And I've always, like, you know, uh, cared deeply about um, how I could support, you know, creative people. Um, and so then one day I had the realization, like, oh, like, there's this job called a curator. I could do that. This band could be my life. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I... I still just approach it, I approach it as a fan, right? Like I get excited and I wanna share the things that I love with with people and like try to explain to them why they should love it too. Um, so I mean, that's been my path. And then, you know, the actual like work side of it is like, you know, I intern and, but again, I, I did it my own way. All right, I think that's a great place to leave it. We'll be back in a few seconds with white wine, but first a quick message from our sponsor. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that has allowed artists, designers, and photographers of all kinds to create websites showcasing their work. We spoke with one of them, artist Maud White. I am a paper-cutting artist and storyteller, and I live in Hudson, New York, in the Hudson Valley. We asked Maud to tell us about her process, including how long it takes her to create one of her incredibly intricate paper-cut works. Oh gosh, some pieces take weeks. For one thing, the beginning vision I have is never what it ends up to be in the end because it's cut paper, there's no erasing, and so it's always this really exciting, magical reveal at the end. I like working from old black and white photos because what I do is so positive and negative and that just makes it so much clearer. So I sketch it out, a rough guide, and then I have my knife and I use rubber thimbles on my fingers so my fingers don't go numb because I do cut a lot. You can see the results yourself on Maud's website, bravebirdpaperart.com. 
which she designed using Squarespace. I really love Squarespace. The templates are so beautiful and especially the one I'm using. It's really clear-cut. It fits with what I'm doing so well since I work in black and white. I've had really fun, great conversations with the support staff there who've been like, oh man, I'm looking at your website. This is so awesome, like while helping me. So it's just a really welcoming, helpful place. I'll say that. Make your work stand out with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Use the offer code artsy to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code artsy, A-R-T-S-Y. And now, back to our show. All right, Scott, so uh, let's start with you. What are you, you going to be seeing this week in the art world? Uh, I am very excited to go see the new museum Triennial, which has the excellently punk rock title Songs for Sabotage and is actually it's a great title. It's a really good title. Titles are the worst and that is a great title. I, I'm pretty pretty into it. So the, the title might be set in the bar very high. <laughs> we'll see. But um and it's kind of appropriate to this conversation because just looking at the essay from one of the curators, Gary Carrion Muriari, whose name I might be mangling. Um, he's talking about the artists in the show. He says they belong to the generation of the young precariat beset by economic and social insecurity, regardless of the overall wealth of their respective nations. So I'm sure it'll be a very upbeat show, yeah. first of all. <laughs> just um, so precariat. Just to self-promote a little bit, Gary will actually be our guest on a special triennial-themed podcast next week. So go see the show and tune into that. And uh, Jacqueline, what are you going to see? Well, uh, actually, after this, I'm going to see um, Pablo Helguera and Suzanne Lacey's show at the eighth floor. Uh, but I'm also excited to see, I've been like, just emerging from a period of intense labor, which in our my household is referred to as asshole season. Uh, so I'm finally emerging from asshole season and reclaiming my time. Uh, so I'm excited to see. I haven't seen um, Sandra Perry's show yet at Bridget Donahue. Um, I think Jesse Darling has a show up. And there's an artist I met in Montreal this summer, um, Celia Sideris, who has work in a show in the Lower East Side that I'm going to check out. And I'm going to be going to the Brooklyn Museum to check out their uh, Basquiat exhibition, which uh, famously features uh, Yusaku Mezawa's record-setting $110.5 million Basquiat. Thanks so much to our guests for joining me, Scott and Jacqueline. Thank you so much. It has been delightful. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at artsy.net. See you next time. Our producer this week, as always, associate editor Abigail Kane, but joined with help from Louis Sansano. The theme music is by Broke for Free. Other music is by Jazzoff.